0: Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. This week's show is going to be an exciting one. Uh, First, we're going to discuss a place that's on many folks' bucket lists. And then, second, we're going to talk about how to become a digital nomad with two professors who have studied the sociological and the economic factors. Uh, that have to be in place, and that's making it sound much drier than our conversation will be. But first off, we have one of our favorite guests back. She is Jen Rose Smith, and she just wrote a beautiful article for The Washington Post called, Iceland's New Driving Route Explores the Remote North. Welcome back, Jen. Thank you so much, Pauline. I'm glad to be here. So you start this article in a way that makes sense for today. Pre-pandemic, there were few destinations as over-touristed as Iceland. But the Iceland you saw had more sheep than people, right?
1: How did you manage that? It's true. I mean, it's the confluence of a few factors. Visiting in the middle of the pandemic... Fully vaccinated means there are many fewer people than previously. Mm. I think that the month that I arrived in June, there was one ninth of the visitor arrivals in Iceland than there had wow. been in June of 2019. But I also went to a pretty remote part of the country. So it was me and my mom. Um, we went together for a two-week road trip, and we went to the West Fjords, which is the least visited part of Iceland. And You know, I I always take it with a grain of salt when people tell me that a place is remote. I live in a place full of dirt roads and mountains in Vermont, but Mm. it was truly, truly remote.
0: And that's a good thing. See, I'm more of a city person. So I, I read your article with interest, but I'm not sure if I would have followed in your footsteps. What about the remoteness do you enjoy?
1: You know, I have always loved wild places. I love mountains. I love places where I sort of feel like I'm seeing the world with a little bit of a less, less of a human footprint. Um, mm. And the West Fjords were very much like that. You know, I also, I do live in a rural place. so I'm always fascinated to see rural cultures in other places. So lots of farmers, people who make their living from the sea, people who are also drawn there because they really like these wild natural landscapes.
0: And you really feel the elements when you're there. I mean, at one point you're discussing, your you're staying in a, I guess, a small cabin. And the, the, it sounded like the, the winds were almost making, making it rock. You could really feel the elements there, right?
1: Yeah. And actually, so we were staying in a camper van almost the entire time. So you could very much feel the elements. The van would shake in these big gusts of wind. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big camper. I've done a lot of bike touring, which means sleeping in a tent most nights. And so many nights when I've been staying in a tent, I've thought I'd be so cozy if I were in a camper van right now. And I can report back after my very first camper van trip. It was really cozy and nice, but you could really sense the elements. I mean, you don't feel separate from what's happening outside. Wow.
0: Now, you were able to make this trip because the country of Iceland decided to try and what's the word, rejigger its tourism by it, helping people go to this more remote part of, of uh, Iceland. What did the government do that, that made your trip possible?
1: Yeah, so the tourism board in the Westfjords created this route called the Um always kind of at your peril to pronounce Icelandic words, but that's as close <laughs> yeah, as I can get. very good, yeah. <laughs> so that, that translates to Westfjords Way, and it's basically a route that sort of follows all the little ins and outs of the fjords and mountains of the West Fjords. It's 590 miles. And it's a way of suggesting that tourists branch out beyond the most popular best known sites in Southern Iceland and go to a place where not many visitors go. And you know, this is kind of in line with a lot of what governments are doing right now, or we're doing before the pandemic to try and disperse tourists. Because in a lot of places that we associate with over-tourism, it's really a question of overcrowding. You know, so the tourists in Iceland often will come by for just a few days, maybe even on a stopover on their way to Europe. And so Mm. that leaves them with time to go to some of the sites that are within day-trip distance of Reykjavik, the capital and those places are spectacular. They're absolutely incredible. But it means that you get a disproportionate sense in those places of there being lots and lots of people. Right. Well, you
0: say those spots are spectacular uh, off the ring road, which is much what most people do. Were the sites as spectacular? In the north, I know people go to the south to see towering waterfalls and geothermal uh, uh, attractions. What
1: do you see in the north? I mean, it is really, really so beautiful. So you see these deep fjords with mountains right next to them. And often there's these dirt roads that kind of creep along the edge of the mountains in between mountain and ocean. There's gorgeous, gorgeous waterfalls, these big bird cliffs where some of the most important bird nesting areas in all of Europe. So lots of puffins come, come to Latribjörg bird cliffs to lay their eggs. And as far as geothermal activity, it's interesting because the Westfjords are geologically one of the oldest parts of Iceland. So they don't have this kind of simmering volcano, steaming water and geyser geothermal activity, but they're kind of like the Goldilocks of Iceland's geothermal activity in the sense that by the time that hot water from underground reaches the West Fjords. It's cooled down to just the right temperature. And so, mm-hmm. while you can't take a bath in a geyser because it's scalding, in the West Fjords, many of the natural hot springs are just the right temperature for bathing in. And it was cold and windy and rainy when we were there. And we spent a lot of time in hot springs and it was wonderful.
0: Ah, oh, how great. Now, you didn't really address this in the article, but I'm going to ask you anyway. I've known a lot of people who have gone to Iceland, lured by both visions of waterfalls and other sites of great natural beauty, but also because the airfares had been so low. And then once they got to Iceland, they were shocked by the costs there of hotels, of meals. You were in a camper van, which I'm assuming helped keep some costs down. But but what's the pricing like right now?
1: Yeah, it's true that I would say that prices in Iceland are somewhat higher than prices in the States and really not terrible. I was in a camper van, so it was pretty cheap. We spent nights at beautiful camp spots for about $12 a person.
2: That's Um, nice. That's good. That's great.
1: (laughs) So, we spent a couple nights in hotels, including at the beginning, because, you know, to at the time to um, comply with the COVID protocols, you had to stay in a hotel till you got your test results back from the airport. But I found it to be totally reasonable. And that was not a limitation as far as I was concerned.
0: Well, that's great to hear. So, one final question. You say at one point that you think the route you took would have been more popular except for how much longer it takes to do it. How much time does a person really need to put aside to follow in your footsteps?
1: You know, I met people in the West Fjords who were driving the 590 mile route that I was on in just a few days, like two to three days. But I think that it's a place that really benefits from taking your time partly because you know the roads are good roads for going slow on they're dirt in a lot of places they're potholed they go up and over these mountain passes but mostly there's just so many places that you want to stop and explore along the way i would really take a minimum of 5 or 6 days in the west fjords themselves
0: Yeah. No, I can't. There's a moment in your
1: article where you're driving uh, along a fjord
0: and suddenly you pull over to the side of the road so that you can look into the fjord and in the water. How many whales were there? That just sounded magical.
1: I mean, it was a little hard to tell. There must have been at least six or seven humpback whales. And they were spouting and they were throwing their flukes into the air. And this was just after we'd gotten the news that this whale watching tour that we were really excited about had been canceled because of high Mm -hmm. winds. And so, and then it just felt like serendipity to be driving along. And my mom was at the wheel and I just saw a spout in the water and said to pull over yelled to pull over maybe <laughs> and we just lay in the we lay in the plants by the side of the road with a pair of binoculars and watched the whales for about an hour wow sounds amazing
0: well it's a beautiful article and we thank you so much jen for appearing on the fromer travel show
1: thanks so much Pauline. it was really a pleasure
0: Our next guests wrote a book about an activity that I think is a dream for many people. It's called Digital Nomads in Search of Freedom, Community and Meaningful Work in the New Economy. And we have the two authors on the line. They are a married couple, both professors. Welcome, Robert Litchfield and Rachel Waldorf. Thank you.
2: Thank you. We're happy to be here.
0: So what made you decide to pursue this topic? What what, what caught your interest about it?
3: So I am an urban sociologist and I had been working on a project my book before this one was about New York City and and um was about the loss of middle-class housing in New York City. And I had interviewed a lot of people who felt that their wages were not keeping up with the cost of housing and the cost of living in New York. I thought they had this sort of great lifestyle and these great jobs, people working for MTV and things like that. And they would say, well, actually, it's not quite what you might imagine it is. And then they would just tell me, all of the things that weren't meeting their expectations about what are called in sociology, economics, urban studies, creative class cities, cities like New York and, and D.C. and Boston and L.A. and San Francisco, with a lot of people who have so-called creative class jobs. and. So I became interested in that. And then I worked with two different students on projects about people working on laptops and coffee shops and then one on students who aspire to be creative class workers. And I just started, you know, becoming interested in this idea, like, well, if they're not happy at their creative class job in like a premier world class city, what what is there for them? You know? And then I started reading about people who had quit and Mm -hmm. had decided that if they had a way to make their skills work remotely, they were not going to stay in their so-called creative class city. They were going to leave. So I became interested in, in what sociologists and migration experts call push factors. What pushes people away from their sort of creative class professional jobs in cities. And we so half the book is sort of about that. And then the other half is about what pulls people to move into a creative class. Uh, I'm sorry, to move into a digital nomad hub. So uh, what 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 makes them decide to move to someplace with in-person, even though they have digital skills, why sure. do they move to an in-person community of people who are trying to
0: work remotely? Before we get to that second half, do you have any uh, stats on what percentage of the American workforce is now made up of digital workers? I mean, it's probably squishy because of the pandemic, because so many people were working from home. But do you know what percentage went to other countries or other communities uh, yeah,
2: than is where their of, jobs are. Yeah. This is sort of the uh, uh, difficult question to answer that we're frequently asked. Uh, and uh, so I think that the numbers on this right now are largely just not known or maybe even not knowable in exact <laughs> terms. There are people who purport to know. We have seen some surveys run by market researchers and things like this, mostly by people who have kind of a vested interest in that number being as large as possible. Uh. Um, and, And so our opinion is that it depends on what you call a remote worker, and it depends on what you call a digital nomad how you would slice this up. Now, our definition of digital nomads tends to cut this as a fairly small number because what we focus on is people who have really left behind their lives, often have no fixed long-term residence at all and are traveling, albeit often very slowly, um, from destination to destination with no kind of permanent home. Sure, And so this is a kind of... Avant garde of remote work, if you might think of it that way. It's people who are really um, at the extreme. But now, with the pandemic, obviously, many, 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 many more people are cast into remote work. Yeah. So it is possible to construe this now all of a sudden as a much larger number of people and and as a much larger potential number of people as some freedoms start to be granted now to workers that honestly were just a, a Fantasy two years ago.
0: Sure, and and your research was done two years ago, I would think, or or because I know it takes a while for a book to get published. Is yeah. that when when was your research done in all in this time?
2: So uh, our primary study was completed well before the pandemic. We began researching this group in 2016, and the primary data collection happened in 2016 and 2017.
3: With follow-ups all the way up until the time of publication.
2: Yeah. And so we okay. continue to stay in touch with most of the people in our primary sample. Well, almost up to the present, really, but certainly up until the time when we... And when we even published.
3: people who we haven't like formally interviewed, when the book came out, they were reaching out to us and telling us they were still doing it, or they were telling, them the, telling us the circumstances of how they're making it work during COVID, or what right. their relationship with their employer is right now. To emphasize is just that I think that maybe this is the beginning, the pandemic, before the pandemic, I would say weeks before the pandemic, people were like, remote work, you know, that's for coders, you know, that was just kind of, <laughs> it, was, right. it was not something that very many people had an option to do, including women who have worked in at their company for a long time, people with children, you know, sure. people for whom it really makes a huge difference to have that flexibility. It was still seen as very a marginal thing and i think now and now you're seeing this resurgence i think now we're recognizing it's never going to be able to go all the way back to normal and even if employers want it that way the employees don't
0: right let's go to the sample of people you looked at because you didn't look at folks who were just out there on their own all over the world you instead concentrated on i don't know if an intentional community is the right word but you you concentrated on a community on the idyllic island of Mm -hmm. Bali Mm -hmm. uh, of all digital nomads who decided to create a new community there. First of all, how did you hear about these folks? So I was reading
3: about, like, again, you know, I was reading about people who were creative class workers And I had read that there were these things called co-working spaces popping up in certain areas. So there are several digital nomad hubs around the globe. And one of the things that, you know, in the book, we talk about what makes for a good digital nomad hub. So for instance, New York is not a good digital nomad hub because it's too expensive. And so you're not going to be saving any money. Um, And when you're a freelancer, you know, you want to have some predictability in your spending. So we kept coming across like best digital nomad places to live, best digital nomad. And it would be like Bali, Chiang Mai, Thailand, you know, places where the cost of living compared to making Western dollars would be an advantage for you. Sure, And right. um, actually, there's this book, um, many people have heard of it. It's called The 4-Hour Week, And they talk about this idea of geo-arbitrage, this idea of making money in a place like in the West and then spending it down someplace where it costs like about 500 bucks a month to live or something. Right. And so that's one of the reasons that Bali, that's not the only reason we talk about Bali specifically, but we also talk about Bali as one of many places to focus on. But at the time, Bali was seen as a hub and, and still is, um, not not during, obviously the pandemic has hit Bali horribly, but- sure. um, but in general, we try to think about, you know, in general, there are places that are affordable, that have very good, reliable access to Wi-Fi, at least ah. in homes, at these co-working spaces. Right. And then they also have attracted a, 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 a critical mass of other people in the lifestyle there so that you can have in-person community with others who share your values for freedom. Mm-hmm for personal development, for work, for um, things like materialism, family, spending. In a random population, like I live in Pittsburgh, if I was just going to Starbucks and working on my computer there, it really, I wouldn't necessarily have anything in common with other people on their laptops there. And we'd all just be going home to all of our obligations at home. And it wouldn't be acceptable for me, for instance, to go up to you, like Pauline, let's say you were um, working on your laptop at Starbucks. I couldn't just lean over and be like, hey, you know, what are you working on? I'm sure we have (laughs) a lot in common because we both left our lives behind. Like, I couldn't say that to you. You would be like, you You know, but in in digital nomad hubs, Pauline included, that's very normal. I mean, if someone's not wearing their headphones, it's sort of implied that they're signaling to you that
0: they're open for a conversation. Wow. All right. So let's talk about some of the people who are doing this in in Bali. And, uh, you know, I I have read in the past, and actually I've written about hubs that are really, really intentional so that a company buys a place for people to stay as well as providing a place for them to work. And they live in a massive apartment building everybody in the apartment building being a digital nomad and and share meals together and do that. Was that the type of of situation in Bali or was it a little looser?
3: That's available there. And certainly you're seeing a lot of that coming around now where companies are sort of saying, we're going to go to this place for three months and then we're going to go to another place for three months or something like that. And so there are places like that. And we feature some of that in the book, but that's not the dominant. That Right now, that's not the dominant uh, form digital nomadism takes.
2: Yeah, I would would say that it's more normal to see people who are there on their own alone, but that one of the reasons why they choose to go there is that they know they will meet others like themselves there. And so Mm -hmm. they are going alone, but they are seeking in-person community with others. If you think about their employment, when we when we were there in 2017, last there were three kind of groups of people, employment wise, who were there, mm-hmm. and it's very diverse nationally. Um, so there were 18 countries of people in our sample. Wow! Um, Do they, they all
0: talk in English
3: together? Yes, or
2: English have... is the dominant language.
3: That's unifying language. Yeah, and right. it's
2: also useful because Bali has an extant tourist culture from Australia, which provides a level of English competency in the local population. Sure. Of tourists, So that allows this whole thing to go much more smoothly.
3: Some of the Balinese even speak with an Australian accent in their English.
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: And so, but the three groups of people that we ran into there, um, the largest group at the time certainly were freelancers, people who had, had quit their lives in the West and who had moved or were moving slowly around the world and who were in Bali had had online, not like a lot of money usually. Like they did, the the myth of the trust funder was not really, you know, most of these people were not very wealthy, but they had uh, knowledge work skills. So they had skills that they could pivot into online work. So they were privileged in the sense of their skill set. Sure. And so these people, um, you know, freelancers were the largest group, people who were now working often in similar occupations to what they had done previously but now in a freelance capacity with the freedom to travel. So beyond
0: coding, what would they be doing? So what, the, what were some of the other jobs?
2: The, the main occupational groups that we observed were technology, obviously, tech people were one. A uh-huh. second group were maybe loosely defined, I would call marketing. So this is everything from people who are engaged in the technical side of marketing and analysis, to people who might be content writers, to people who do some kind of search engine you know, optimization. Yeah, web design, search engine optimization, uh-huh. all the different kinds of, and even uh, uh, bloggers and people like that, people loosely associated with some sort of marketing activities. Uh-huh. Um, and, and then um, there were also people who were in what we would loosely call uh, coaching. Uh-huh. Uh, which I would I would take to mean to encompass everything from business consulting services like leadership consulting and things like that, um, all the way into health consulting, health and wellness writing. kinds of things, uh, writing skills, all kinds of different things. Where the pr- primary business is, you know, essentially selling one's service to others uh, in order to help them with something. Right. And then the the last group is, is e commerce, obviously. Lots of people who had moved into e-commerce entrepreneurship and who were there working to start and maintain e-commerce businesses. So they selling,
0: they selling what? Balinese goods or oh, selling what?
2: Anywhere. It, so, so Amazon FBA businesses were huh. where fulfilled by Amazon where they, you know, they basically don't touch the product. It's they called drop
3: shipping. is a term that, that a lot of, especially in Chiang Mai, is popular. Where, you know, you have a product that you're selling, but you don't necessarily have stock of it.
2: Yeah, you never uh, so handle the product. It's sourced wow. from China. It's handled by intermediaries. Basically, you maintain the sales and marketing infrastructure for the product. And yeah. intermediaries like Amazon, Alibaba, et cetera, handle the actual shipments of the goods to the customer and the, the marketing, you know, the, the payment interfaces and all of that. Right, right. And so those kind of the four categories. And then we had the freelancers. So then there's the entrepreneurs who are doing that kind of thing. And then at the time, the smallest group, but the fastest growing, I would say, even in 2017, was full time remote workers.
3: Huh. Like, I met someone who reached out to me when the book came out. Um, a man who was, I would say, like in his fifties, maybe early sixties. I met him at one of the co-working spaces at like a mixer at a barbecue. And I, and he said, Oh, yeah, I'm still, um, working for my company and they still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that he travels. They have no idea. Wow. They oh remote and he decided he didn't want to be holed up at his house or at a Starbucks. And he's, uh, I think right now he's in Costa Rica.
0: Because I have a friend who decided to move to Spain and she, cause she's trying to get Spanish uh, nationality. Her grandfather was Spanish. So she has to live there to get it, but she works writing copy for some major manufacturers in the United States. Exactly. And she has she has not told them she's in Spain because she thinks they would drop her if they do because one company would because of tax regulations, I guess.
3: Yeah, and what's interesting about her is, I mean, she's like so many people we meet. A lot of, um, is she American now? She's American. Yeah. yeah that a lot of americans you know i mean i know you know this but a lot of americans are have not been that enamored with travel abroad especially outside of europe um but those who who are in our sample the americans in our sample many of them caught some kind of travel bug at a young age because they have family from another country or uh their parents work for an airline or they had some sort of experience as children abroad that has stuck with them. And so I found that to be a pretty unifying experience among the American sample. The other people in other
0: countries have, seem
3: to have traveled a lot more. But
0: let me ask you. So to my mind, they're living the dream, but how many hours a day do they have to work? Are they really having a travel experience or are they chained to their computers?
3: That's a great question because a lot of them, and and it and it ebbs and it flows. But a lot of people say the biggest myth of digital nomadism is the thing that you see on Instagram. You know, the office of the day with the laptop, with the coconut, water <laughs> right, right, the beach. That in reality, you have to be very disciplined to get. At least the minimum number of hours you need for your lifestyle there. And so, you know, you say yes to work when it comes a lot of times, depending on what your travel goals are and your financial goals are for that time. There are people who will take a break and say no to things, especially as their businesses become successful. They feel like, I don't want to take a client that's not nice to me or that I don't agree with their product or their marketing makeup to teenagers and I don't agree with that or something like that. And and they might do something like that once they have the ability to do that, where they get a handle on their financial goals. And then other people, like if they're starting a company and they really want it to be more than like a lifestyle company, they might work very long hours because They might have um, a freelancing gig to pay some bills. They might be building an app. They might be doing all kinds of things, uh, many, many side hustles to get passive income going and to get a business going. And so they might work enormous hours if they have many projects they're working on.
0: Do any of them worry that this will set them back if they eventually decide to move back to the country they're from? That this history will be seen as kind of, I don't know, not very serious and that it could hurt their long term career prospects?
2: This is a wonderful question that we get asked a lot. And and I think that the interesting part of the answer is that the short answer to that is no. (laughs) These people are committed to this as a longer term lifestyle for the most part. In fact, out of the 70 people in our primary sample, only two during the time that we were following them up, had left and gone huh. back to their country of origin to do something very similar to what they did before.
3: We, we asked, one of the questions we ask is like, do you have a plan B? Like, what if this implodes and this doesn't work out for you? And do you, do you
2: tell us? So you we said? had so we had uh, one interview who we asked us, who we said, well, what do you mean? Do you, do you mean like, if this doesn't work out, oh, could, am I worried that I'll never be able to get a, a job that I hate in a cubicle somewhere? <laughs> he said, no, I'm not worried about that. He said, "I somehow I think it'll work out that I'll be able to get a job I don't like in a cubicle somewhere.
0: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> if this,
3: great if this, answer. Yeah. I thought it was a great answer too. I, this wasn't even someone I really liked that much, but this one thing he said. I was like, yeah. I mean, and we did hear from even people, the thing about being bored in a cubicle, it sounds like such a cliche. And and Rob and I, I'm 48, Rob's in his early fifties. And we did like, in doing our project, we did talk to so many people about like what we're working on, because obviously we're married and, and we, this is a big thing for us to work on together. And so many people around our age where we live, they were just like, yeah, like work's boring. You just art work and like a lot of times you're done at a certain time but you just have to stay there and that wow. like you just kind of suck it up and and you know the millennials, you know, they're so entitled and I'm like, "No, this person worked at her company. She's 32." She worked there for ten years. Like she, she's allowed to
0: decide at thirty-two to change and not wait till she's fifty. Sure, you know. And there are there are other parts of your life that could be impacted. So, of the seventy people, how many had children? How many were long term relationships?
2: So that's that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think an important thing to note here is that the average person on our sample was in their early 30s. They'd worked for about eight to 10 years professionally. Um, so they had, they were very work-identified people. They had skills. They had a good base of experience in the workplace behind them. Um, but most of them were single. They had and, had breakups in relationships. Yeah, most of them were single, and and I believe that it is certainly true that that they almost universally acknowledge that their lifestyle inhibits the formation of long-term relationships. Now, of course, we did meet people who were um, in families, in long-term relationships, married. I will say that on average, those people tended to be better off financially, yes. more commonly the case. So you might with five thousand dollars in the bank and an airline ticket and some skills decide that you're going to hit the road. Right. If it's just you. Sure. Um, but uh, if you've got two kids <laughs> and you know your family probably want a little more than that behind you. And in sure. fact, most of these people who who went as families, the dominant case was people who were running a business that was succeeding. And they realized that they'd gotten it to a point where they could run it from anywhere.
3: But we yeah. also met people that were in relationships and their relationships weren't working because either they got in a relationship with someone and it turned out that person had no intention of ever traveling. They just wanted mm. to get a house and have children and all that kind of stuff. And they were not prepared to do that. They didn't view it like first you do this, you know, first you're dating, then you get engaged, then you get married, then you buy a house, then you have children, then you like keep staying at your job and get promoted. You know, that 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 orientation, which I think a lot of people have, was something many people in our sample, if not almost everybody in our sample, even the people who actually did that, right, were rejecting that as a norm. Uh And now, we're, we're, especially we're, with regard to like their job, making them unhappy. Sure.
0: Yeah. Now, were there certain nationalities that seemed more inclined to take up this lifestyle? You said that Americans had to have travel in their background to do this. Was there what, you know, I would assume the Australians They're the digital nomads because they're such great travelers. They're always out there. Was that the case or or was there another nationality that really took to this type of lifestyle? There wasn't
2: a single nationality. I think in Southeast Asia, you saw Australians overrepresented because, of course, it's closer. Right. Right. Bali's a four-hour flight from Perth. A lot of
3: people in the UK had been to Bali or India. Yeah. um, And had some – the thing about Bali that makes Bali – a special case for a nomad destination is it definitely attracts women more than other places because of uh, I would say because of Eat Pray Love, which took place uh-huh. in Bali, sure, and a part of it, and also because of the yoga, because of the Hindu religion in Bali, it's very it's feminine. very welcoming,
0: yeah, uh, and it's feminine. Not a
3: feminine sure. vibe. And so, yeah, it is. And it's welcoming. I mean, you know, Indonesia is Muslim, but Bali is Hindu and it's very sort of mind your own business, karma, you know, these kinds of, it's not like in our culture. I think for me, the first time I went to Bali, when I went to Bali, it's hard to imagine for someone from Philadelphia, like me, just going someplace where people light incense and do offerings to the gods, like all day long from the time you're in a taxi cab and there's incense and flowers in the cab and then burning on the dashboard. And like the men have a flower behind their ear and are wearing a sarong. And like, you know, it's just very, it's disorienting being from where we're from, where you celebrate holidays a couple times a year, they're doing it several times a month, you know? Yeah.
0: That's the spiritual side of life is at the forefront. It's very intense.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely leaks into, it draws people there. So a certain kind of person likes that. And there are people that don't like Bali. There are people that go there and are like, you know, there's too many tourists here because it is a huge tourist destination for Australians. And or they'll say, like, I don't really like the food there. Um,
0: Beyond Bali. So you said Bali, Chiang Mai. Just I want to wrap up by giving our listeners some ideas of where they might go as digital nomads. What are the other hotspots? Bali, Chiang Mai. What else? Uh,
2: So Lisbon, Portugal. And then we've also been hearing about uh, a lot of other towns in Portugal who are that are that are um, bringing things into into uh, digital nomad friendliness, shall we say. Uh, Medellin, Colombia has been on a lot of people's lists. Uh, Costa Rica has been a long, long one that's been mentioned a lot. Um, Mexico,
3: Playa del Carmen.
2: Yeah, the the Greek islands are now starting some initiatives. And now, if you've been following the news, you see that uh, there are a number of different places who are st- that are starting remote worker initiatives. So, Barbados, I believe, has mm-hmm. a remote worker visa. Yes. Some of the Caribbean islands. Now, of course, the question is, who are they targeting, and is that a different kind of clientele than the you know the person who might go to Bali, say? Right. And and of course, that's that's true. Some of these destinations are more expensive to visit, even for longer periods of time, but. I, I think you're seeing a variety of different kind of countries starting to try to get into the game more and more. Right. And Do even you, locations within the United States, you see um, you yeah. know, loca- localities trying to incentivize remote workers to to come there.
3: I teach yes. at WVU, and we're we're offering people, um, I think it's like $12,000 if they'll come to be um, a remote worker in West Virginia.
0: Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. We actually on firmers.com, we did a, An article on a website that acts as a directory for places around the United States that will pay you to move there. Exactly, Uh, they're trying to. Well, it's a fascinating topic, and if you pick up their book, "Digital Nomads," it's almost like a guidebook. You'll have some ideas if you want to do this yourself. Thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. This has been absolutely fascinating.
2: Thank you for having us. us.
0: That's it for this week's show. But before I go, I talk to my guests for a couple of minutes after we finish recording. I do that because I like them, but also because I use an app that records both sides of the conversation separately and then marries them in the cloud. And so we have to make sure that uh, both sides of the conversation upload. And that usually takes a couple of minutes. And every once in a while, one of the guests says something that I so wish we had gotten on tape during the interview, and that happened this week with Jen Rose Smith, our first guest today. I had interviewed her a couple of months ago about a wonderful piece she wrote in the Washington Post about aromas and travel. And so I asked her, was there an aroma to Iceland? And I, I should have asked her this during the interview. She said, oh, yes, everywhere wild thyme is growing. And it grows in such profusion that you can't help stepping on it. And when you step on it, the aroma, this herby aroma comes up to, to your nostrils. Uh, I, she didn't say it as <laughs> strangely as I just did. But I thought, wow, wow. After reading her article, I somewhat wanted to go to Iceland. Now I really want to go. To me, that just sounds so sensual and soothing and uh, really wonderful. So I just wanted to share that with you all. I I also wanted to share uh, that if you ever have suggestions for this show of guests, of what we could be doing better, of what you like, it's always helpful to get good feedback as well as bad. Please email me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. That's fromer, F R O M M E R, travelshow at yahoo.com. All right. Thank you again for listening. And uh, to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage.